0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 60. Hello Metamorphs! Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's see what's on deck for this week. Today I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 17 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began in Episode 24, so if you're new to the show or you haven't listened for a while, make sure to catch up before continuing on with the rest of this episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Cattain and David Silverleaf are trying to help a group of young nobles who have gotten themselves in serious trouble. After being exposed to the power of the mysterious Telvari Rift, Lady Mysteria Halloway, Lady Julia Mathias, and Lady Sephira Hinlossos have all become possessed by magical symbionts, creatures that live in the rift and feed off of its life-aspected mana, Trapped in Metamor in the bodies of these three women, the symbionts are slowly eating away at their life force. If they can't get back to the rift soon, all of these women will die, and their symbionts will perish along with them. Kate and David have just visited the Hedonist Temple, where Misty and her half-brother John have been sheltering Cephi since her return from the rift. Once there, Kate and David discovered two more important facts about Cephi. First, the Rift's power had transformed her into an asper, a person with the psychic power to see the future. Cephi's power is both incredible and uncontrolled, and she's been plagued with terrifying visions of what seems to be the end of the world. Second, Cephi is not hosting just one being, but five, and two of them are human spirits. Hal Rains and Bernard Travers. Both of these men had accompanied the nobles on their trip to the Rift, and both of them died because the symbionts inside them consumed their life force. Kate and David have to transport Saffy from the Hedonist Temple to Lightbringer Headquarters on the other side of town. Lightbringer commander, Jana Starson, has agreed to help Saffy and the others to return to the Rift, but the transport to take them there will not be ready until 9 p.m. Since it is currently only a little after midnight, it would seem that there is plenty of time for Kate and David to make their delivery. But what neither Kate nor David knows is that the Vampire Syndicate has been tracking their movements since their meeting with Misty and Janus, and Malcolm Ardvalos, the Vampire Prince, has commanded his people to kidnap Sephihin Lassos. Malcolm wants to know what the power of the Rift can do. And since Cephi is only a minor noblewoman from an unimportant house, she is the perfect subject for Malcolm's experiments. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 17 Kate discreetly checked the rearview mirrors of the skimmer. Well, that's not good. Still there? David asked. Uh huh. The old sedan skimmer had been cruising behind them, two or three body lengths away, for over ten minutes as David flew a casual S-path around two of the larger towers. They were unquestionably being followed. Kate turned to Sephra, who was strapped into the back seat. Hey, Sephie, do you have any idea who our friends are back there? Sephra shook her head, her pearlescent eyes wide and unblinking. No, can't read them. Sorry. Well, it was worth a shot. Kate turned back to her partner. We could go into one of the towers, try to lose them in the tunnels. David's ears flattened in displeasure. I'm afraid I don't have your knack for underground flying. It would be too easy to close us in. Want me to fly? Kate asked brightly. The elf looked pained. Not after what happened last time. What? I landed us in one piece? Yes, because half of the drive assembly was literally fused together. I still say our cruisers are under-engineered. You should be able to push the turbines at least 20 past Redline before things start melting. This is why swoop racers shouldn't fly skimmers. He checked his mirrors, then notched up the turbine speed. Traffic is too thin up here. I'm going downside. Good idea. Kate punched up the passenger side nav displays and checked the traffic map, twisting and rotating the display to examine the three dimensional structure of the Skyway grid. Looks like there's still some congestion on Duke's Way, north of the Citadel. Understood. David urged the cruiser forward, wove past two more vehicles, then quickly pulled into the nearest available skimmer lift. Kate rocked forward against the restraints as they came to a halt. A moment later, the lift cage closed behind them, and they fell through the layers of the city. David let the lift carry them down to the dusk level, which was as far as it would go. Not that Kate wanted to hit the street in any case. Not with a passenger, and certainly not after nightfall. They came out of the lift into a collector lane for 200th Street, then merged into the high-speed westbound lanes that would take them across the breadth of the valley, they reached the Dukes Way interchange in less than two minutes, split off to the right, and looped over 200th to merge onto the southbound corridor. Dukes Way was the primary north south artery between Kaya Citadel and the boroughs of Valley North and Solshore, and even well after midnight the skimmers, trucks, and lift vans still filled the highway's six southbound lanes. David deftly maneuvered their cruiser around and through the clots of traffic then slowed down and tucked into a middle lane behind one of the larger freight trucks. "'Any sign of them?' he asked. Kate turned around in her seat and scanned the lines of skimmers behind and around them. She saw a small sport flyer zipping through the traffic the same way they had been, but it pulled into the far left lane and continued past without hesitating, apparently taking no notice of the two detectives and their unmarked police cruiser. "'Not sure,' Kate admitted, looking back over the surrounding vehicles again. She could see at least half a dozen skimmers with headlights and silhouettes that resembled their tail. The old sedan had been a very popular model in its day, and there were probably tens of thousands of similar vehicles in Metamore City alone. Make like you're going for the next exit. David complied, turning on his right blinker and gradually shifting over toward the exit lane. Just before the lane split off, he merged back into the rightmost through lane. Kate watched the vehicles behind them carefully, but she didn't see any other skimmers in the exit lane follow them back out of it. I think we're clear. Let's get out of here before we get stuck in the line for the Citadel. David nodded once. Check the map. I'm thinking 150th East to Brightleaf, then South to 87th. Kate grinned. Right through our home turf, eh? All right, let's have a look. She reopened the display and zoomed in on Precinct 9. Brightleaf Avenue ran north-south through the eastern half of the precinct, past the tower of the same name, which, as it happened, was where their station house was located. At 90th Street, they would pass out of their home jurisdiction and into the neighboring Precinct 13, where Kate lived. On 87th Street, they would pass Hughes Tower, home of Serenity Arms, cutting right through the center of Miss Fallon's territory. It was all familiar ground for the detectives, which would increase the odds of getting away or getting to help if their pursuers showed up again. Everything looks green down there, Kate said. Should be smooth-soaring. Let's go. David took the off-ramp for 150th Street leading them away from the streams of citadel traffic and along the northern edge of the central borough. Kate could see the vast spire of the citadel out her window, rising above the city and disappearing into the clouds. Around it lay the open ground of the square, a square mile of dark space cut out of the dazzling lights of the city's towers. They cruised past the citadel in silence the majesty of Kaya's fortress suppressing any attempt at discussion. Kate imagined that she could feel the unseen eyes of the Majestrics, looking down on them as they flew by. She wondered if Kaya could sense that there was something different about Sephi. She wondered if she would care if she did. There was still no sign of their pursuers, as they flew past the square and the city block beyond it, and finally turned south on Brightleaf. It was one of the broader local skyways in the borough, but at this hour the dusk level was nearly deserted. Sephira began to grow agitated as they traveled further south. She let out a soft whimper as they crossed 90th Street, and Kate turned around in the seat to check on her. The young noble's hair flexed and twisted around the seatbelt straps and the grab handle above the door, flickering with nervous pulses of blue and yellow light. Her hands balled into fists, and her unseeing eyes were wide and twitching. What's wrong, Seffy? Kate asked. This is the place, Seffy said, her voice hollow. This is where I died. What? Kate whipped her head around, looking for signs of an oncoming skimmer or a man with a gun. How? When? I mean... Sorry, Seffy said. She clutched at the sides of her head, scrunching up her face. Hard to think for just me. I mean, this is where Bernie died. Oh, but wait, Bernie died in... Kate looked at the map, then made the connection. Hunter's Hollow, which is right under us, of course. One of the disadvantages of being able to memorize an exact path to anywhere was that Kate didn't always think about how those places fit together in the city's three-dimensional structure. Now that she knew to look for it, she could see the forbidding outline of Trent Tower on the east side of the skyway. What was Bernie doing down there, anyway? Kate asked. Cephy bit her lip, distracted from fear into something like embarrassment. We were looking for an energy source. Her voice had changed again, a subtle shift in timbre that told Kate someone new was speaking through her. Something to sustain us other than his body. The power in this place is strong. We didn't realize the danger. He tried to stop us, but we didn't listen. Then he tried to fight us, to push us out, and that made it worse." She lowered her head and fell silent. Kate reached out and took her hand. I'm sure Bernie knows you didn't do it on purpose. Yes, now, Sethi said. She shook her head dully. So tired. I hate this place. I just want to go home. Kate's heart ached at the simple longing in the girl's voice. She gave Sethi's hand a gentle squeeze. I know. It'll be soon, okay? Less than twenty-four hours and you'll be home. Sefi nodded. Yes. Thank you. I... She looked up abruptly, her hair reaching out in all directions. Kate sat back in surprise. Something's wrong, Sefi whispered. The police radio crackled. Dispatch to all available units. Attempted 261 in progress. Precinct 13, SL1, 88th and Brightleaf. ES reports a blonde human female being pursued by a tall man in a dark coat. Suspect said to be carrying a knife or club. Over. Kate's gut wrenched. David, step on it. As David pressed the accelerator, she grabbed the microphone and clicked it on. Dispatch 942. 942. We are two blocks north of 88th and moving to intercept, 261 in progress. Over. Dispatch copies, 942 moving to intercept, 137. A male voice came over the radio then. Dispatch, 13102. Moving to assist, 942, ETA 10 minutes. Dispatch copies, 13102 moving to assist with 261 intercept, 137. Wrong! Wrong! Seffy whispered again. She started curling into a ball on the back seat. I could feel it. Darkness. Hate. She shook her head. Don't take me there, please. 261 is rape, Seffy, Kate said grimly. Stopping bastards like this is why I became a cop. Just stay in the cruiser and keep your head down. There's another officer coming in right behind us. This won't take long. Seffy whimpered and tucked herself in tighter. "'Getting close,' David said. "'I think I see the woman up ahead on the right.' He flicked on the high beams to give Kate a better look. Sure enough, there was a woman running down the sidewalk in stocking feet, whatever shoes she'd been wearing long since forgotten. Her red cocktail dress was torn off of one shoulder, the strap flapping from side to side with every step. As they came within fifty meters— Kate could see her eyes shot wide with fear, her chest heaving with the exertion of running for her life. Kate rolled down the window and waved to get her attention. Ma'am? Ma'am? The woman stumbled to a halt and stared in shock at Kate and the unmarked cruiser. Then she turned and bolted down an alley, a narrow tunnel leading into the interior of the adjacent tower. The man chasing her turned the corner and followed her seconds later. "'Damn it! She's panic-blind! Take us in after them!' David executed a respectable, precision turn and flew the skimmer into the tunnel. The alley was uncomfortably narrow. It might be possible to turn the cruiser around, but just barely. David kept the skimmer neatly in the center of the tunnel, which was also where the woman and her pursuer were running. The woman shot a glance over her shoulder, let out a shriek, and ran even faster— the panic tapping into some previously unknown energy reserve. She spotted a fire exit off to her right and bolted up the staircase, taking the steps two at a time. The man was about to follow when he looked back and saw the cruiser bearing down on him. Kate locked eyes with him and held up her badge in warning. Slowly, he raised his hands over his head and came to a halt. Kate noticed him carrying a small black cylinder with a silver tip perhaps a stun gun or a stubby wand of some kind. Kate put away her badge and drew her sidearm, then slid out of the cruiser and pointed the gun at the man's chest. Put the weapon on the ground, nice and slow. The man complied, his face a blank mask. Now turn and face the wall and spread your arms and legs. Again, he obeyed without comment. Once his back was turned, Kate retrieved the cylinder from the ground. She'd been right. It was a stun gun. The bastard wanted her alive and helpless. She passed it to David, who removed the battery and stuffed it in an evidence bag. She checked the suspect for other weapons, found a switchblade in his pocket, and passed that to David as well. There was nothing else, so Kate cuffed the man's hands behind his back and told him to take a seat. The woman, by this time, was long out of earshot. David, see if you can track her down, Kate said, rubbing tiredly at her eyes. We're going to need her statement to hold this skag. David nodded once and loped off down the tunnel and up the stairwell. About a minute later, a patrol skimmer pulled up in the tunnel behind David's cruiser, lights flashing but siren off. Good timing, Kate said to the patrol services officer who wore a corporal's insignia and a name tag that said Miles. Corporal Miles was young, bland-looking, and had a brush cut that was too short to be of any recognizable color. He nodded politely, if blandly, to Kate as he approached, notepad in hand. Detective, he said, what do we have here? Kate related what she had seen and how they had chased the man down. Corporal Miles made notes dutifully on his pad as she spoke. And where is the woman now? The corporal asked. She rabbited, Kate said. My partner's running her down now. She pulled out her walkie-talkie and clicked to transmit. David, what's your twenty? Over. There was no reply. Kate grimaced in irritation and jiggled the antenna. Blasted things never work right on the lower levels, she muttered, I'm sure he'll be back soon. Corporal Miles nodded absently. I'll need you to come into the precinct house and make a full report. Yeah, gonna have to give you a rain check on that. We're in the middle of transporting a witness right now. She gestured at Sefi, who was curled up in the back of the cruiser, as if asleep. The corporal didn't look any more interested in that than he'd been in the news about David, but he turned and shone his torch into the cab of the skimmer. Seffie's face was obscured by her curtain of hair, which was behaving like actual hair for once, instead of a fiber-optic light show. She didn't move as the beam of light played over her body. Kate was extremely glad they'd made her put on clothes. Corporal Miles looked back at Kate, his expression unchanged. You shouldn't let her lie down like that, Detective. It's not proper seatbelt use. Kate sighed. Her headache was coming back, and she rubbed at her temple in irritation. So Miles was one of those cops. Great. At this rate, they'd be lucky if they got out of here before 3 a.m. David, where the hell are you? A warning buzzer sounded. A few hundred meters down the tunnel, the heavy doors of a skimmer lift opened, revealing the headlights of a mid-sized shipping truck. It was a ground truck, with wheels instead of lift turbines. Normally, that would have limited it to the street, but such vehicles sometimes made deliveries on the dusk level, especially in parts of the city where the street was particularly unsafe. The truck's cargo section was almost three meters tall, and squeezed through the tunnel with less than a meter of clearance. The driver flashed his high beams at Kate and Miles, and honked his horn twice. Looks like we need to clear out of here. Kate said. You want to put the perp in your back seat, or should we frog-march him? Corporal Miles's expression clouded with disapproval. We need to wait for your partner and the victim. Yeah, we can do it outside. Kate jerked her head at the big ground truck. I'm sorry, ma'am, but I can't take this man into custody until I have probable cause. Probable? Oh, for profit's sake, you heard the same call from dispatch that I did. Yes, but I need the woman to identify him as the perpetrator. We aren't moving him until that happens. The truck honked again. Kate looked back and forth between it and the regs-obsessed patrol officer. She groaned. She was stuck between the impassable and the unendurable. This is not going to end well. No sooner had the thought crossed her mind than a loud crash and a shout came from the stairwell. Catherine! David? Kate ran to the fire exit and pulled it open, then jumped as a body landed on the ground in front of her, its head following a half-second later. Kate caught a momentary glimpse of heavy brows, pale skin, low-slung jaw and protruding fangs, before the creature crumbled into dust. Shit! Vampires! And that's where I'll have to leave you, folks. Will Kate and David escape the vampires' ambush? Will they succeed in getting Cephy to safety? Or will Malcolm Ardvalos have a new specimen to experiment on? Find out next week. Lloyd Alexander said, Fantasy is hardly an escape from reality it's a way of understanding it. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I need fantasy more than ever these days. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,056 words this week, over the course of 8.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 613 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script— I've gone 32 days without breaking my chain. I made great progress this week on The Lost and the Least. I'm now up to chapter 26, and the manuscript is at about 87,000 words. So far, in the month of July, I've worked on this novel every day except Independence Day. I can feel the story beginning to accelerate, disparate plot threads starting to come together. It's a great feeling. I can't wait to get this story out to my beta readers, and then to all of you. On the Patreon campaign, I've just received some lovely previews from artist Ben Clifford for this month's bonus artwork. He is illustrating the first of two scenes from the story Flying Free, my superhero story that aired just about one year ago on this podcast. I've put up some of the preliminary sketches on the Patreon feed so go check them out if you're a subscriber at the $3 a month level or higher. We've had a lot of subscribers who had to reduce their pledges over the last couple of months. That's completely understandable. These folks were being amazingly generous, and I never could have gotten through my period of unemployment without them. But I always knew that they wouldn't be able to keep pledging at that level forever. If you're not a Patreon patron, though, and you're enjoying what I'm doing on this podcast, this is a great time to make a pledge. For just $3 a month, you can get bonus stories, bonus artwork, author commentaries, and sneak previews of upcoming works. We've had some hiccups over the last few months in getting some of those rewards delivered on time, but we're finding ways to adapt, and there's a lot of cool stuff headed your way soon. Head on over to patreon.com slash authorchrislester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show... Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is ethereus. E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S If you like this show, help spread the word by leaving a review on iTunes, or review my books on Amazon. It really does make a big difference. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by chris lester and liminal corvid press the show is released under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license so don't change it don't sell it but feel free to share it all you like for more information about this license please visit creativecommons.org